You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set off to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 389. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey, son, hey, son! Finally! Recording! Yeah. Finally recording! People don't know what we're going through to get this to happen. Oh, my aye, God. Aye. Oh, anyway. It's like a maze. A maze happening in real life. <laughs> Scheduling is a bitch. Yeah, right. And then keeping the schedule. That's also difficult. Yeah. But with us from Vancouver is Andras. From Malmö is Pontus. And from... Where are you, Annika? Zigbo close to Cologne. <laughs> yeah, okay. Cologne. I can get that. Cologne. The other one I haven't practiced on yet. Mm. <laughs> aye, aye. All right. Yeah, well, well it's, it's, it's getting hectic. But at least <laughs> I'm at a place where it's not super hot at the moment. Ah, what about oh. you guys? I, you know, it's, it's crazy. I should not complain because it's been a terrible summer for most of Europe. But mm -hmm. up here in Sweden, it's been colder than usual. And I'm very, part of me is very disappointed in that. But uh, what can you do? <laughs> well yeah here it's here it's rainy but i'm actually happy for that yeah because mm -hmm. i don't really like the heat i mean i like summer but i don't like be sunburned i don't like the heat it's feeling like walking through butter if it's so hot <laughs> i'd much rather have the rain to be honest and and luna was also really happy recently she found her rain head that i bought for our tour in australia last year Ooh. so she, she found it and she was like yeah luna put on rain hat <laughs> she was really happy <laughs> how is she coping with with the heat well she's not too happy can tell you that nee. um july was really not the best month for her well july was not really the best month for anyone for on, the planet, on earth yeah. <laughs> on, on planet <laughs> earth i'm afraid mm -hmm. it's really awful i mean i mean before this july 2019 was considered the hottest on record mm -hmm. right and now it seems to be surpassed by this july yeah what was shocking and i, I was reading up on, on it a little bit according to some experts this could easily be the warmest month in the last 120,000 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All of these records are, are, are falling like um, cards mm -hmm. all over the place. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. Well, he needs a pressure cooker if we have this planet, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. New expressions are coming about. And uh, Antonio Guterres, he's the UN chief and... Uh, he, no one could have said it better. The planet is entering an era of global boiling. Yeah. I think that tells it as it is. Mm. But, you know, we may not even live to see this disaster because um, there are other disasters brewing. I listened to a <laughs> radio show the other day with Max Tegmark. Have you heard of him? Max no. Tegmark? No, it's, he's fairly famous. He's a Swedish-American scientist. He's a cosmologist, machine learning researcher at MIT. And mm. uh, maybe it's because he's half Swedish. I, I hear about him more than you do, but he's quite well known internationally. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, there's this ra radio show in Sweden every summer that is quite popular. Each day for a couple of months, a different celebrity gets about an hour to talk about whatever they want to talk about and play the music that they like, etc. 
So Max Tegmar did that the other day and only after, I think it was less than a minute into the program, he concluded that according to him, AI is going to be the end of mankind and uh, finish us off by the end of his own lifespan. And he's about my age, so it'll be here any week now. And um, oh, okay. <laughs> so mm-hmm. according to him, we are doomed and we'll see. So maybe global warming or global crisis or global boiling isn't uh, the end of us. Very so cheerful. We, we, we might as well just stop worrying about that then. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. No, we, let's, we, we have to really get this show out very quickly now before it's too late. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're all fucked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh. oh man! Okay, uh, <laughs> let's have fun with this episode, right? <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, we, I, I think we have to make it clear to everyone that the reason why we are talking about this is not because we want to depress anyone. We don't want to bring down the mood and the general spirit. It's the opposite. We want to talk about stuff so that we are discussing it because there has been a lot of talk among experts um, regarding that fact that that we are talking about stuff that but we're not doing enough and uh, mm-hmm. we should be much more ready to act and research shows that if people are dealing with something as a current set of events they are much more willing to think the whole problem through yeah. and not just drop it so this is why it it might be very important to discuss these while they are happening as in especially mm-hmm. with the extreme weather events becoming mm-hmm. more and more frequent as they are happening it's a bit of a scare as well i understand that but um, this is probably what's necessary for a lot of people to listen mm-hmm. it's an opportunity to talk with that i always have to think of this example that is in this movie by al gore with the frog do you remember it mm-hmm. it's like if you mm-hmm. put a frog into boiling water they will jump out But if you put a frog into water that you just let simmer and then slowly heat up to let it boil, then the frog won't notice. And that feels a lot like what you just described. Yeah. Yeah. And also the only difference is that we frogs, we don't have anywhere to jump. Yep. Can't jump onto the moon or so. (laughs) No. This is the only planet we've got. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) because we cannot choose which um, catastrophe to use as um, a reason to die out. I think we should just um, keep living and try to make this world a better one. So this is why we're trying to do our part, by providing a platform for the discussions that we are currently engaging in as well. So, but we have a show to produce, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we set out to do. And as the first part of that... We usually talk about something that happened this week in skeptical history. This week, I'd like to mention someone whose birthday is celebrated this Sunday. And it was Sir Alexander Fleming, who was born on the 6th of August, 1881. And uh, he was a Scottish physician and microbiologist. And everyone links his name to the discovery of penicillin. It was an interesting piece of research that he did. He was he was looking for a cure to deal with certain bacterial infections and how to fight bacterial infections. And he came across two things. One of them is what we call lysozyme. That is um, basically 
an antimicrobial agent that is uh, found in certain bodily fluids, for example, in tears, in saliva, in things like that. Well, he came across that by accident on a Petri dish uh, where he was doing some research on certain bacteria. And uh, then basically the same thing happened with him while he was just putting aside a couple of sets of Petri dish loaded with bacteria. And uh, one of them was contaminated with a fungus. And he found that the bacterial discs that were closer or, or, or touching the part where the, the fungus was present, they couldn't grow. Famously, reportedly, he said when that happened that, hmm, that's funny. And uh, <laughs> we often use that to describe how scientific discoveries are usually made. So this is why I, re I really like that moment in uh, science history. Well, he has been very highly acclaimed. Um, he died in 1955. But beforehand, he got the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with Howard Florey and Ernst Boris Chain. And he came across that kind of discovery but he was not the one who did the part where it was purified and isolated for use in, for example, humans, but that it could be used to treat actual bacterial infections, got him the Nobel Prize. Well, we have to add that it's only gram-positive bacteria that it could be used for. And I'd like to mention another thing, since this is this week in skeptical history. There are certain myths circulating connected to Fleming as well. Obviously, his legacy is amazing. He got knighted as well, so this is why we talk about him as Sir Alexander Fleming. But there is something that is called the Fleming myth. And the Fleming myth is a very interesting story regarding an alleged connection to Sir Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. According to legend, Churchill was almost killed by an accident and Fleming's father helped the young Churchill and Churchill's father, in return, helped with the financing of the education of the young Alexander Fleming. Basically, it was like, yeah, you saved my son. I'm going to help your son get the same education that my son gets. And uh, then, obviously, he got all that education. He became a very good researcher, very smart person who ended up discovering penicillin. And the second part of that legend is that during the Second World War, when Churchill fell ill with a bacterial infection, he was treated with Fleming's discovery and penicillin. And that way, Fleming saved the life of the young Churchill. By then, it was not young Churchill, but the old Churchill's son. <laughs> so it was like an almost fable-like story of how the good deeds came back to the same person. The problem with that is that it's not only fable-like, but it is basically a fable. <laughs> so there is not, no truth to it whatsoever. And it's been debunked several times on many, 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 many occasions. But it still lives on. 
And uh, Fleming was quite aware of that, and he was quite open about that. Yeah, so um, Alexander Fleming, I do think that he deserves to be very highly acclaimed for his discoveries. But uh, yeah, the myth about how he is allegedly connected to Winston Churchill should not be propagated. All right. But we commemorate him on his birthday, which is the 6th of August. Happy birthday! <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how to link that to the birthday of Alexander Fleming, but um, anyhow, I would like to know if there is something that Pontus pokes the Pope about. Yes, I will, of course, poke the Pope. Okay. This week is WYD, <laughs> World okay. Youth Day. Uh, okay. So it's the Catholic World Youth Day celebrated in Portugal this year from the 1st to the 6th of August. Now, uh, first question is, how can a World Youth Day be almost a week long? Well, <laughs> if God can be three different entities and still be only one, I'm sure a week can be a day. Just eat your holy crackers, which is flesh, and drink your holy wine, which is blood, and everything will be fine. So logic is not something that concerns a religion too much. Anyway, the World Youth Day is supposed to be held every three years, but it has been delayed due to the pandemic, of course. This huge event has been described as the Catholic Woodstock event, <laughs> and it will be Frankie's fourth the whole thing was created by John Paul II in 1985, probably because he uh, realized that the church was losing its appeal to the younger generations. And so he became a hippie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but <laughs> instead of fixing the underlying problems which drove young people away, like the constant sex abuse scandals, he chose to go all hippie uh, on them, as you say. And hopefully there will be a little less sex on this event than there was at Woodstock anyway. <laughs> but whether or not Frankie wants it, the topic of sex will come up very much uh, during the week, I'm sure. Many people in Portugal, where it's held, do see this event as an opportunity to bring up the sex abuse scandals that surrounds the church. Not just around the world, but specifically in Portugal, there have been at least 4,815 Catholic sex abuse victims only in Portugal over the last 70 wow. years. Oh my fucking God. This is according to an investigation that was published in February this year. One of these victims called Filipa Almeida was sexually abused by a priest when she was 17 years old, which is now 22 years ago. And she is uh, very vocal about this. Uh, this was during a religious training course, and she has had to live with this ever since. This commission that published the report about the 4,815 identified victims also said that over 100 priests suspected of child sex abuse uh, remained in active service in the church after the fact. They also said that what they have been able to find was, quote, only the tip of the iceberg, end quote. So around 5,000 victims, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And that's Whoa. just in Portugal. 
Now, Frankie uh, will madness. be there. It is, it is madness. It is madness, yeah. Frankie will be there, uh, but of course, this is not something that he likes to comment on. Uh, and if we would have to press him to say something, I'm sure he would say that he feels, quote, very sad about the whole thing because that's his usual uh, reaction when he gets to when he has to say something about it. The local church, in the form of uh, a patriarch Manuel Clemente of Lisbon, he said though that the Portuguese church's commitment to solving the issue was quote total end quote. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Then it's all fine. Then <laughs> they are very committed. Yeah, to of fix course. This. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the answer to everything. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> mm. All right. Thank you very much for poking the Pope once again, Pontus. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the news. Yes, and it brings us to something I found really interesting. It was a bit of a roller coaster to read, honestly. Because apparently there's a video out where a German family is there's playing in their living room and then people come in like security officers appear at the door and confiscate everything that is of worth, including the mother's earrings or the, the little son's piggy bank. Then they hang up a portrait of Zelensky in the living room on the wall. (laughs) And then they steal the little boy's leopard, um, which is a stuffed toy, of course. (laughs) Yeah, so that was the video. And now you can imagine this little record scratching sound like... (laughs) That wasn't a real video. What happened was that this video was found on a Telegram channel and claimed to have been from Alternative für Deutschland, AFD, or Alternative for Germany. The video itself doesn't mention AFD, and people used facial recognition software and identified Russian actors in this video as the Germans. So the yeah. so the accent wasn't telling enough. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I've never heard Mm -hmm. a Russian person speak German before, but I'm pretty sure that when they do, it could be heard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you should still, you you could, of course, still get people in that don't have an accent. Oh, yeah. I mean, your your government, (laughs) oh, you don't want to say it's the Russian government, of course. But if you have the power to produce such a video, you also have the power to just pay people to hold on to have an accent to voice that and you don't even notice. But... They did find actors and they found, for example, who played the security officer. They found who played the father. They found who played the mother. <laughs> it's, it's just a striking coincidence that all of the people in the video are Russian. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> right. You can also find other ideas here. For example, that they take even the stuffed toy leopard away is a reference to the leopard battle tanks that Germany has sent to Ukraine. To Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, of course, it's, it's pretty funny. Or not, it's not, I don't want to say it's funny, but it's absurd to watch this as a German for something like Heil Zelensky, put him on the wall. We don't even do that with our, uh, with our Bundeskanzler, let alone Zelensky. Uh, yeah, just know that stay skeptical with videos coming out uh, that cla- make outrageous claims like that. I, I just want to say always stay skeptical in that regard. Yeah, right. 
No, it plays into the whole narrative of Russia trying to portray Ukraine as a Nazi country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. Mm. That fits fits horribly well, of course. Then. Yeah. So we have more uh, misinformation or uh, international complications, I should say. Uh, and I have good. to. Co- yeah, no, <laughs> good. <laughs> so we have to comment again on the burning of the Quran that is happening in Sweden or has happened a couple of times. There's also been similar demonstrations in Denmark. I don't know if they actually burnt it, but they stamped on it and they stepped on it and they did things. And we have, of course, mentioned the Danish-Swedish citizen called Rasmus Paludan before, who who has burnt the Quran more than once uh, in the last year. And now the question is, how do you handle these things when it creates riots and international incidents and trouble? And trouble is, putting it mildly, I, I think there are casualties. People are getting killed or at least injured. The Danish foreign ministry has said now that it wants to explore intervening in in some protests where, quote, other countries, cultures and religions are being insulted and where this could have significant negative consequences for Denmark, end quote. And that includes security concerns, of course. Swedish prime minister Ulf Kristersson has said that a similar process is underway in Sweden and he's confirmed that he's in close contact with the Danish government. In June, for instance, an Iraqi Christian refugee living in Sweden burned a copy of the Quran outside Stockholm Central Mosque. And there are many examples of similar things. But that's interesting because that's an Iraqi. It's not, it's not a Swedish person doing this. And uh, it's clear that a lot of this is being stirred or at least encouraged by other parties, especially, I mean, Russia again, I think. Because mm-hmm. they want, they don't want Sweden to to enter NATO, so they want to blow up these differences and, and cultural differences. It's going on and on, and of course, the Sweden Democrats, the Swedish party that I love to not like at all, they are enjoying this uh, immensely. There is a guy called Rikard Jumshoff. Uh, he's a top Sweden Democrat. He's up in the in the party leadership. What do you call that? You know, just aside, he has a hairdo just like Adolf Hitler. It is not just me saying this. It's never this. a good sign. Never good. If, <laughs> you, if, you, if, if someone copies Adolf Hitler, it's not a good sign. No, if you take a picture of this guy and you just pencil in a little moustache, he looks like the Führer. And it's, oh my God. It, it's crazy that somebody like that is up there. And as I said before, the, the, the right-wing minority government in Sweden that was got into power last year, they couldn't get there without the support of Sweden Democrats. And part of that negotiations or whatever was that this Rekard Jumsov's guy, he got the position as head of the Committee of Justice. <laughs> it, it, it's absurd. It's absurd. This is a a high position in one of the most important parliamentary committees. And this guy now went out. When everything is so infected, he went out on social media and called Muhammad a, quote, warlord, mass murderer, slave trader, and a thief, end quote. And that, of course, triggered another set of demonstrations and attacks on Swedish embassies in Iraq, in Turkey, and other places. And, and, and yesterday, an employee at the Turkish consulate in Izmir was shot and wounded. Although it's a bit uncertain what triggered that, if that was part of this or it was something else. 
as far as I can tell, the employee did not die, but was severely wounded by a gunshot in the consulate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do make of all of this. This is extremely frustrating. It is not. This is not Sweden as or even Denmark as a country provoke trying to provoke anything. This is individuals not unlikely being encouraged by foreign international interests, to put it diplomatically. But what to do about this? Do we want to implement heresy laws now so that you cannot criticize religion in public? Of course mm-hmm. not. That, no. that's, that you, you can't do that. You cannot uh, set anything on fire in public. Well, uh, they, there are uh, ways. That could be. <laughs> may, maybe that has been suggested. So that all burning of books in public as a form of demonstration, regardless if it is a religious book or not, that could be made illegal. But these things take time, takes time to change. And part of these uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech is built into the foundational laws in Sweden, which you cannot change overnight. You have to have two, you have to have an election between two votes and things like that. And in the t- in the meanwhile, everything is going really badly. And also, do we think that burning the Quran is a good thing? Should it be allowed? Well, I don't know from the law perspective. I think it should be allowed, but I don't think it's a good thing to do. It's it's a very no, it's childish. <laughs> it's childish. It's stupid, and it can never lead to anything good. What do you think you can accomplish if you burn yeah. the Quran, spit mm-hmm. on it, and step on it? Do you think all the Muslims in the world will suddenly change their minds? Say, okay, yeah, we realize our religion isn't good. So since you did this, we're going to change our mind. Of course not. You're just no. you're provoking it's violence. Just, yeah, yeah, it's going to worsen things. I don't, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what to do with it. It's crazy. The important thing is here that a lot of this is not driven by any rational motivation to criticize religion. This is done only yeah. to provoke violence. Yes. And it has nothing to do with Islam. It has nothing to do with Sweden. It has all everything to do with NATO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think faith is a different topic altogether in that regard and also very, very difficult Something that I find really concerning as a former teacher is faith schools. Mm. And some people might wonder what that is. And that is, of course, schools that have a religious character where you can evangelize the children. Yeah, where basically like religion is in the in the forefront, not the background of the school. And that, of course, in itself, I find already concerning because schools are there to teach, (laughs) to broaden minds, to teach critical thinking, to encourage learning. And the Humanists UK actually put out an interesting fact sheet about uh, faith schools in the UK because a third of all tax-funded schools in the UK are, uh, as they call it, schools with a religious character, so faith schools. And this is concerning for several reasons. For example, faith schools can select their pupils based on religion. So they can say, oh, no, we don't want you because you don't have the right faith. So being like from bigger religions like Muslims or Jewish people, but also from just even smaller uh, denominations like, oh, you're not Catholic, we don't take you. Oh, you're not baptized in the right way, we don't take you. So that's already hard because local parents could be deprived of a nearby school because they don't have the right religion. And that's that's already religious discrimination. 
But it goes further than that, because some faith schools have faith school points, as ridiculous as that sounds. And that means if your parents also have to go to the local church, of course, and then engage in local activities in the church. So, for example, you have to be part of the choir or you have to take part in nativity plays. And in some extreme cases, you have to also make donations to the religious group, although that is actually even against the law. And for that, you get points and your pupil, your children might get better treatment then or actually even get treatment, so to say, at the school. Then also faith schools can divide the whole community. If you only take out, say, all the Catholic children out of one community, then you segregate the community along religious, racial, economic lines. And that's sometimes, sometimes that is, that is the same. And research has shown that faith schools usually tend to take more economically stable pupils, richer students and less fewer children from poorer families. So you also break up the community in that regard. So basically a rift through the whole community just by the faith school. Then, of course, that's something where, where we as skeptics would say like, duh, of course, yeah, they indoctrinate children. Of course, yeah. Hmm. So they worship, they sometimes can remove things from the curriculum. And if children say, I oh, don't want to be part of the worship, they usually just sit them outside of the classroom with nothing to do. Funnily enough, that's something that I encountered when I went to school because I didn't want to be part of the religious education. And then they were just like, okay, just sit here, plonk me down in a hallway. <laughs> and uh, wow. no no tasks whatsoever. You just, just sit down here and, and just wait. Was this a public school in Germany? That was a public school. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I didn't like, I did go to, uh, to a Catholic school for about half a year, but that was like, they were actually better than, than the public school that, that were just like, yeah, just sit outside, whatever. <laughs> we can't force you, but we can't, we can't basically force you. But then it means you don't have to come in, but you... Yeah, you also don't get anything you, to do, especially because I was a minor. Like, I was 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Basically not taken care of. They would just yeah, you, you, you become excluded, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But, I mean, I didn't yeah. mind that, but it's still a bit weird to sit outside and in a hallway with nothing to do and people just walk past are like, did she get kicked out for bad behavior? Why is she sitting yeah. there? Yeah, bad behavior. Mm -hmm. like Yeah, that's what it's Not being felt a believer. Like. Oh, that is bad enough. Yeah, and of course, also, usually, in, in like uh, coming back to the faith schools, where thankfully didn't go to, <laughs> because of how faith schools admit their students, they discriminate against vulnerable children. If I said they only take children from a richer background, from that background, from that background, and so on and so on, they usually won't take, for example, foster children. They can, they can look into the background and they don't. Hmm. That's also really, really shitty and also going against, I would say, Christian belief systems. Love your neighbor as yourself, blah, blah. But okay, and the thing is that the UK is only one of four countries in the OECD that does this. So that has this strong part of faith schools. The others are in Estonia, Israel and Ireland. There they can select pupils on the basis of religion. So we can really see it's, it's outdated and it's a practice that shouldn't be allowed. Here, here. 
Yeah, but thankfully, the UK has a very strong humanist presence. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are very yes. active and they are getting shit done mm-hmm. occasionally. Yeah. So so they are yeah. campaigning ferociously, mm-hmm. but very sensibly as well. Yes. It's, it's really it good. It could be a lot worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that reminds me of another organization that we admire mm-hmm. for the work that they do, and that is Sense About Science. And I'd like to mention something that happened about a month ago so it's a little bit old news but it's really important so i don't want to leave it behind and that is evidence week and i think we've talked about evidence week uh, since it was launched for the first time in 2018 it's a very important campaign of sense about science and they are teaming up with a couple of uh, universities as well this time it was the university of nottingham What it's all about is that they go to Parliament and they ask parliamentarians, MPs and other workers. Some of them are peers, some of them are staff members of uh, some of the members of Parliament and other decision makers, government advisors. So these are people who are close to where the decisions are being made. And Sense About Science kicked this off in 2018 with the aim to try and provide means for the general public to let their parliamentarians know what issues they are concerned with and try to assess how much of the decisions or what portion of the decisions are made based on scientific evidence. And now, this time, it was uh, quite a, a, a good turnout. There were about 160 parliamentarians that really showed their commitment to this project and discussions regarding how evidence informed decision making is the best way to do it. And uh, people could uh, submit questions. They could uh, join an online discussion, which was live streamed, with the participation of some of those parliamentarians as well. Among them were 30 members of parliament, seven peers, and there were 196 conversations made between sometimes scientific experts of a, a certain field and parliamentarians themselves. So I think this is absolutely the way to go. This is something that we should see happen all over the place, all over Europe and in many, many other countries as well, not only in the UK. And it started on July the 3rd and it lasted a couple of days while they were discussing certain topics uh, regarding innovation. Some of the topics were about pollution, Obviously, AI, fuel security, food security, carbon capture, digital health services, and all that, including plastic pollution. Those are very important global topics that could locally be addressed and taken care of. And uh, the way to go is to try and get the ears of the people who are making decisions. Mm. So... Well done, Sounds About Science and University of Nottingham and all the other participants. Let's make this happen elsewhere as well. Mm. Some good work in the UK there. Too bad yeah. that they have such a shitty king, <laughs> to be very <laughs> frank. Uh, the shitty king. The shitty king. So some old-fashioned quackery is what he is into. It's not uh, religion, not uh, climate denial. I think maybe he yeah. does, but it's mostly quackery. He has something called the Dumfries House. It's a 
big 18th century manor in Scotland that uh, Charles restored in 2007. And it has been called one of Charles's vanity projects. Uh, it's now a big tourist attraction with gardens and guest rooms and other activities, including a visitor center and a shop and facilities for ve- weddings and events and things like that. But as always, the alternative monarch, uh, Charles has now set up, well, not now, it's, it's been there for a while. He set up a quote-unquote free course where participants can go and try out acupuncture, reflexology, massage, yoga, hypnotherapy, and also relationship counseling, cookery classes, and dance lessons. I don't know. I don't think mm. by the king mm. himself. He's probably have... <laughs> But um, specifically, now they now claim from this um, establishment that they have very good results of using reflexology to help getting women pregnant. (laughs) The Prince's Foundation, which runs the establishment, says that half the women who have taken part in the project, some of whom, and this is very important, some of whom were previously deemed infertile, they have now gone on to become mothers soon after. Doesn't sound very scientific to me. And uh, some of whom was previously deemed infertile. By whom? How was that? I mean, this is not science. This is not science at all. So reflexology, for people who may have forgotten, it's also called zone therapy. It is a manual treatment where pressure is applied usually on the sole of the patient's foot, sometimes also on other areas like the hands or ears. And according to those who believe in this, it's based on that the human body is divided into 10 different zones, each of which are represented on the sole of the foot. And if you massage the liver bit of the foot, I mean, <laughs> it's really like that. You, you've, you've fixed something with the liver and things like that. Yeah. So they, there are maps. You can see them online where you, the, on the sole of the foot, they have sketched in the different areas of, so that the pinky is... You can buy socks ripped. like that. Did you know that? Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't know is, that. I'm not surprised, though. What do those socks do? Do, do, do they heat uh, certain parts? Of, I don't know. No, 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 they just have the map. They just have the, the map of the like, liver. Ah, so you know ah, where to press. Yes. Okay. okay, very good. Very good. <laughs> I, I, of I thought it was the reflexology socks. and That's, 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 that's part a, of a treatment. You know? That's yeah. a market opening for you. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, but but you of course you can laugh about all of this, uh, yeah. but to the general public and people who may not be following what is scientific or not, this contributes to the idea that nonsense like this can work. So um, he's indirectly, or uh, he he hasn't come out and talked about this personally, I don't think, but he was visiting there a couple of years ago, and he's, it's part of the, the his empire, if you will. And uh, as a king, he he should not promote uh, nonsense like this. And uh, but he yeah. does that because he believes in it. And you should read the book that Edzard Ernst wrote. It's now been renamed. It was called the Alternative Prince. Now it's called the Alter- Alternative King. And there's an updated version. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Cool. But imagine if re- reflexology worked. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes it's it's just a, a nice thing to give your loved ones a foot massage, right? And imagine how much harm you can do with that. Like, I mean, <laughs> oops! <laughs> I accidentally <laughs> crashed your liver. 
I didn't mean that, honey. <laughs> I so, didn't mean to leave sorry, the Legos man. out. Sorry. <laughs> now oh, you stepped on them. <laughs> that, that too. Yeah. Stepping oh. on a Lego and then collapsing because of your big, because of your lung collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's um. Don't want to step on a Lego because some people claim it's the most painful thing you can ever experience. Uh, I would disagree, probably, but they, they uh, probably never never gave birth, right? Yep, that's what I, <laughs> what I wanted to say. <laughs> but completely different topic. Um, I recently read something in the news that I also wanted to tell you because it's not the biggest skeptical angle, but it's still really interesting in regards of the science that they had to apply here. There's a ship carrying 3,000 cars that caught fire just off the Dutch coast and they had trouble extinguishing the fire. That's why I want to talk about it. Um, it's a cargo ship and it carried or is carrying about 3,000 vehicles. It left from uh, Bremerhaven and was on its way to Egypt. And the problem was that it started likely in an electric car in the cargo. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they really Which we still don't know if it was the case. They think, yeah. they think <laughs> that, yeah, they say like suspected, but they kind of mm -hmm. don't know for sure. It's a good chance, they say, a good chance that the fire started with electric cars. Uh, there were 25 of that on board, but they're not entirely sure. There's still an investigation running. The problem is if they actually put water on the ship, then it gets too heavy and it could start sinking. The same applies with uh, sand. So, like, you can't just pour sand on it. It would also get too heavy, would sink. And, and of course, I don't want it to sink. Not only would it put a huge pile of rubbish in the ocean, it also carries a lot of oil. And it's very close to an actual UNESCO World Heritage Site. So, this area around the Dutch islands and mainlands, they are very ecologically sensitive. They have what they call the Waddensee area. So they have 10,000 aquatic and terrestrial species in, in the ocean there, fish and, and other animals and, and other <laughs> plants and stuff. And it's just something that really, really don't want this to sink. So what they did do was they sprayed water on the burning vessel from the outside to cool it down. But it was really like stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like, what do you do? You don't want this to sink. It might burn for days and days. And even when the fire started, it spread so quickly that people actually jumped off the ship into the water. So really, really hard to see. But I found it really interesting that there was so much science going on to find out how to extinguish that and, how, and what to do. Yeah, there are several different aspects. But mm -hmm. what I find interesting about this is how people jump right into the con yes. conclusion that it was the electric mm -hmm, car. Yeah. And uh, obviously the next step will be that electric cars are dangerous and this is a technology that should not be supported because it has the potential to light up like that. But there have been a couple of incidents of ships carrying cars without any electric cars on board mm. in the last couple of years. So it's not necessarily like that. I mean, I'm not denying that it could be and it could easily be the, the electric car that started it, but not necessarily. 
But everyone tends to jump to that conclusion because of the over-reporting of these incidents mm -hmm. and the under-reporting of the incidents when non-electric cars catch yeah. fire. It's the classical like skepticism that people had in the start or still have with flying on a plane in comparison to, to driving the car that they're like, oh yeah, it's too dangerous. But if you look at the maths, there are like so many flights that don't crash. Mm. Yeah, it's like you're completely right. It's The statistics are different than the fear of the public, so to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, speaking of catastrophic events, you know what would be catastrophic? If the scenario in the movie The Day After Tomorrow became the reality. Well, um, it's one of the latest crazes that um, people are talking about that uh, the Gulf Stream will collapse... Well, we don't know. We don't know that. And calling it the Gulf Stream is an oversimplification of the matter anyway. In expert circles, it's um, being referred to as the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulations, or AMOC, because it's like a conveyor belt. So it starts in the tropical areas in the eastern part of the American continent, and it goes upwards towards the north, and then as it distributes, redistributes heat from the tropical areas... It basically heats up northern Europe, and then as that heat exchange happens, it turns back, it goes all the way back down to the lower parts of the ocean as a cool ocean current. So what we're talking about is uh, not only about the heat that is being distributed, it's a so-called thermohaline circulation which means that it's one part of it is the heat distribution and redistribution and the heat differences that will keep that conveyor belt-like thing in motion. But the other thing is the differences in concentration of salts in the water. And that can be easily changed with adding a lot more fresh water. And how can you add a lot more fresh water to the system? By melting ice, Yoo -hoo. for example. <laughs> it's not a crazy idea. It's not a crazy thing. In paleoclimatological data, it has been shown that the so-called dansgard Ösker events, I don't know how to pronounce them, these have been happening. And during the last glacial period, the rapid climate fluctuations happened 25 times. And we're talking about average temperatures being dropped by as much as 10-15 degrees in a couple of decades. And uh, that could be shown in climatological data. So it's not a crazy idea. It's not a crazy thing to say. The crazy thing about that is that what happened in the movie The Day After Tomorrow is not going to happen as it happened in there. It could happen something like a massive drop in uh, the average temperature could happen in the part of Europe. But uh, the other consequence of that circulation collapse or just um, disturbed could be that the heat that is being collected in the tropical areas is not taken away. It just keeps building up and that would lead to even more catastrophic events mm -hmm. and stronger weather events, stronger tropical storms and all that, with more and more energy because of the elevated heat. So that is a very complicated kind of system. So when they talk about how it could happen in the next couple of years, it's probably a 
bit of an exaggeration, but according to University of Copenhagen uh, paper that um, they published recently, and they kind of contradict the latest report from the IPCC, by the way, with their conclusion. And they say that around the year 2060, this will happen. Now, the problem that we see here is not the idea that it might happen, but it's that level of certainty that they come up with. They say that it's with a 95% certainty that between 2025 and 2095, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation will collapse. Well, we'll see. It can happen. It definitely can be affected by the things that are being brought about by climate change. But um, how it will be affected and how will it behave in the long run, we have no way of knowing as of now. Cheerful. <laughs> yep. More disasters. Woohoo. Yeah. All right. So we haven't talked about the piss party for a while. <laughs> the Polish so-called <laughs> law and justice party, so which I, I of to... course, mispronounced, but it's because the pissing it's contest. Yeah, they have no fewer than six really wrong awards under their belt, so uh, they've been around for a while. The latest thing that they have uh, apparently done is to exploit the fear of Russian interference into Polish elections, which of course is a real concern for all countries, I think, especially in Europe. Uh, but what they have done is, to counter that, they've introduced what they call, quote, the Russian Influence Commission, end quote. And this is a new body that will have pretty free hands to just disqualify any candidates that they classify as, quote unquote, persons of Russian influence. The Venice Commission of the EU had this to say about this. Quote, the Venice Commission recognizes the legitimacy of the efforts aimed at countering undue foreign influence, but considers that the approach taken by this law is not appropriate, end quote. It found that the Russian Influence Commission's powers are, quote, extraordinary, intrusive, retroactive, and non-judicial in nature, end quote, and have been formulated in an excessively vague manner. So, the concern is that this commission that has been appointed now by the parliament, which means in this in practice means the PIS party, this commission has a an almost unlimited discretion to just eliminate unwanted members of the opposition. So so they just there's no appeal. So if they decide so oh, you are a Russian agent, you're working on behalf of Russian interests you are disqualified from the election, you cannot, nobody can um, appeal this. So they can just eliminate the opposition whatever, whenever they want to. So that's the piss party again. Yeah. Peace off. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That has been all the news that we wanted to share with our listeners this week, but we still need to find out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, and although we have been talking about the climate crisis before, I do want to talk about it again. <laughs> hmm. Because okay. there has been a news presenter who might or might not receive this week's prize for being really wrong, but I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> and he's called Neil Oliver, a GB news presenter. He was shown in this news clip 
saying that the BBC and others uh, are driving fear by using terrifying temperatures. He said the heat wave in southern Europe and North Africa and the wildfires would completely be exaggerated and it would make people terrified of the weather. He said those supposedly terrifying temperatures that were being predicted, all starting with the 40 this and 40 that, were obtained using satellite images of ground temperatures, end quote. He claimed that would never have been the temperatures that were actually happening. He said the figures are air temperature and the true temperatures were in the 30s. He basically said that the BBC reported wrong temperatures and really criticized them for that. He said everything was in the 30s, but didn't even say, they didn't even give exact locations. Thing is, BBC can give you exact locations where the air temperature, for example, in Lamia, in Greece, was 45 degrees Celsius. Or Figueres in Spain was 45.4 degrees Celsius. Or Gitio in Greece was 46.4 degrees Celsius. <laughs> so they can give you an exact location and the basically the, the exact temperature. That did happen. And they can also tell you it was taken by air temperatures, so not ground temperatures, and they do it in the shade with a free movement of air. They actually even build little huts for that. So <laughs> if you ever see... If, It's a standard way yeah. of measuring, yeah. At the temperature and humidity. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's why you can say it's comparable because it is a standard. They built these white slatted boxes at a height of 1.25 meters. So you don't have direct ground heat and you also don't have like heating up because they're black or anything. It's a standard and they either have that or they have other methods approved by the World Meteorological Organization. So it's, it's always standardized. It's of course a bit rich to tell the BBC they would be lying, but <laughs> this guy hasn't been the only one. I mean, it goes a long way to tell that we can we can see that people have a hard time believing the high temperatures. That doesn't make them less true. I, I can see like that people are like, oh my God, climate change can't be true. And these temperatures can't be true. Th so the BBC is lying. <laughs> But their action should rather be, so we should do something against climate change. But okay. There you go. So for claiming that the temperatures are not right and to misreport and claim that these are terrifying temperatures, that they are terrifying temperatures, but to undermine the trust in weather uh, reporting <laughs> undeservedly, the news presenter Neil Oliver receives this week's prize for being really wrong. Yeah. Mm. Just because you don't like the news, yeah. you can't just invent yeah. <laughs> that it's a lie. Mm -hmm. Always yeah. wonder if these people really believe yeah. what they are saying, or mm -hmm. if they just make it up, or if yeah. they, or maybe it's both. Yeah. I don't know. You, you can they first make it up, and then they start yeah, to believe exactly. it themselves. You can craft your own clothes, but you can't craft your own reality. Yeah. Mm. All right. Thank you very much, Annika. Thank you. And that brings us to basically the end of the show. I'd like to re-emphasize that we have kind of a new segment that we call Word of the Week or Who's Quacking, uh, depending on uh, what kind of material we receive from our listeners. So 
I'd like to ask our listeners to send in their nominees for Word of the Week. That means some kind of word or expression that is used in your own language in a skeptical context, like to describe something that is relevant to skeptics. The other thing is the who's quacking part, when we would like to hear about people who are spreading nonsense in your country. If you can send us recordings, preferably with English subtitles or or some kind of translation or transcript of uh, what they say, that's even better. So we would like to share it with our listeners from all over the world. Yeah, please do that. And while you do that, (laughs) I'd like to say something else. Starting on Sunday, the 6th of August, Mm -hmm. I'll be starting my tour through the Baltic states. Starting in Vilnius, then Klaipeda, Riga, then uh, Tartu, and finishing in Tallinn. So if someone listening to this would like to meet up at any of those places, please get in touch either on info at theesp.eu or andrash at theesp.eu. I would be more than happy to get in touch with skeptics from the Baltic states. Awesome. But that really brings us to the end of the show where we need a quote to finish on. Yes, and this week's quote is by someone we won't see at QED, which I'm really sad about. Organizing mm. committee recently published that Jason Arde and Mick West won't be able to make it to QED, which is uh, makes me really sad, but I still wanted to give him a quote in, in our show. Oh, and I was so looking forward to hearing Mick West as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. But yeah. for those who don't know Jason Arde, um, he is a British writer and fundraiser. And he also works in sociology and he is best known for his research on race and racism. He was born in 1985 and he began an appointment as a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge and thus became the youngest black person ever appointed to a professorship at Cambridge. So really fascinating, really awesome person. I would have loved to meet him at QED, but now I will just give you the quote and I think... He's saying education, but I think it would also completely work if you take education out of the sentence and put skepticism in, or science. But yeah, the quote is, If we want to make education more inclusive, the best tools we have are solidarity, understanding, and love. End quote. Yeah, that's nice. Nice sentiment. Yeah, I think it's something that we as skeptics should strive to do because, uh, yeah, the, I think the understanding part is something that, for example, Marsh is doing really well. And I think we can we can only strive to do better in that regard, to be a bit kinder to people that just don't know. And we, we shouldn't ridicule people. We should, um, oh, yeah. except for those that deserve it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think... With ridiculing people, you don't win everyone over to the scientific, skeptical side. No, you never will win everyone over. Exactly. It's just a, a little bit of kindness goes a long way. Exactly and, that. Uh, and that's exactly what Jason Arde basically said there. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus. Thanks a lot. Thank you. (laughs) Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Miss that.
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe It was Sir Alexander Fleming. Mm. Sorry, that, that was a weird pronunciation. Alexander. Okay. <laughs> so it was... So, and it was Sir... Sir. <laughs> yeah, he was Scottish, so I could, I could, I could use this. Sir Alexander Fleming. So, British socio... Sorry. A British socio... What's the... Sociopath. No, sociologist. Soci- sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, he's a British socio... Ah! He's a British socio... Okay. <laughs> she was really happy. <laughs> was that what she actually said? Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Is she speaking more German than English, or, or the other way around? Um, she's speaking a bit more German because she's like just getting more more German with me and with all her, her whole environment, basically. Yeah. But because Scotty and I talk English with each other, and uh, Scotty talks English with her, and if if we put on the occasional Bluey or Peppa Pig, then we put it on in English. Oh, okay. So mm. so she she's pretty pretty on par with both languages i would say but a bit more german mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> is she quite ready to, to switch between the two? Oh uh, yeah oh yeah she recently re- translated something without even like realizing like a song <laughs> a nursery rhyme that she knew from from english and she just translated it into german without knowing that she amazing. translated it <laughs> it was really funny what a time amazing what a time yeah amazing and what a kid like she's mm. she's just cool mm. <laughs>